Hello, hello. Well, I want to start off by telling you a story. It's not a true story or anything. Just a story. Just imagine. So imagine there's a man with two sons, and they have been ill-treated, and they're in a bad spot, and they don't have enough for food, and, and they barely have enough for shelter, and they try to work, but nobody ever pays them for the work they do, and, and they're, they're kind of at the end of, end of their rope. They have nowhere to turn. And um, in the midst of that situation, as they're about to face starvation, a man comes and shows up at their home and says, you know, I'd like to help you. And they, they kind of look at him like, not sure how you can. He's got a little back sack, backpack and a couple rifles. And he says, well, I'd like to hunt for you. I'd like to provide you with some food. And they say, okay, that would be awesome. And he does. For weeks, he helps provide for this man and his two sons. Um, heads out hunting and comes back and brings them what he's able to, what he's able to get and um, starts to kind of build trust with them. And then one day, he, he goes out again to hunt and he's gone for a long time, far longer than he's ever been gone before. Um, and the, the man and his two sons start to wonder if he's going to come back and if maybe they're going to be back in the situation they were before where they're starving and they have nothing to eat. And as they're sitting, looking around the little place where they live, they realize that, this, that when the man left, he, he left behind one of his rifles. And the sons say to the father, well, we could hunt. We could, we could take his gun and we could go out there and we could do this. And they kind of talk about it. He says, okay, yeah, we can do that. I guess I've seen people use guns before. And so he takes the rifle off the wall. He says, bring me your lead soldiers. And he melts them down in the fire and he turns them into pellets. And he gathers up a little thing of gunpowder and he stuffs it down the barrel. And then he loads the, the ball in there. Now here's the thing. This is a modern rifle. It's not a musket loader. But he doesn't know that. The only rifle he's ever seen used before is a musket loader. And so he stuffs it down the barrel and, and they set out. They set out to hunt. And they're, they're pretty excited, especially when they see the moose just around the corner from their house. They, they actually feel better than they felt in a long time because they're about to do this for themselves. And they're about to, you know, they're, they're about to take life into their own hands and they're about to feed themselves. And if you know anything about guns, you know what's about to happen, don't you? Because what happens when you pull the trigger of a modern rifle with something stuffed down the barrel? Yeah, it's not pretty. It's not pretty at all. All right, now keep that story in mind, and let's read Exodus chapter 32. And you can stand with me. I know you're confused. That's okay. <laughs> when the people saw that Moses was so long and coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off your gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, 
Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. They are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, so that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought up? brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out, to kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever." Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. And we're going to stop there. I know there's more verses on the slides, but the word of the Lord, you may be seated. The people of Israel stand at the foot of the mountain. They had seen the glory of God on the mountain for six days. They had heard the covenant that God wanted to make with them, and they had agreed to this covenant three times. Yes, we will do whatever the Lord commands. We will obey what the Lord speaks. We will be His people. He will be our God. And the covenant having been made, the ceremony having been completed, the Lord calls Moses, and Joshua goes with him part of the way, up the mountain, and he's there for a really long time. He's there for 40 days. For 40 days, the people are at the bottom of the mountain waiting and wondering, what's going to happen next? What are we supposed to do? And they're caught in what some people call the messy middle, the place of uncertainty, the place of waiting. It's not like Moses went up there and on his way he gave them a schedule Expect me at dawn on the break of the 41st day, right? Like, there's no timeline here. They don't actually even know what he's doing. What they got to see was the presence of God like a devouring fire on top of the mountain, and Moses walk up into it. That's it. And now they wait. And you can imagine the rumors starting to spread. Something's gone wrong. He shouldn't have been this long. Maybe a mountain lion got him, up, got him on the way up or on the way down. Maybe he met with the Lord, but now he's dead. Maybe he's gone the way of Enoch. We've heard about Enoch. He walked with the Lord and was no more. Maybe that's what happened to Moses. Maybe Moses wasn't as holy as we all thought he was. And when he got too, present, too close to the presence of God, he died. Maybe he abandoned us, just like everyone else has abandoned us. And you start to doubt and you start to wonder. 
I called this sermon, jokingly, How to Leave God in Three Easy Steps. And uh, one of my friends at the Hub, one of the people who came by, said, I came up with three easy steps for this. Doubt, make an idol, worship it. <laughs> three easy steps to leave God. I thought that was really clever, really well done. Um, they're faced with uncertainty and waiting and doubt. And that is a moment of opportunity. It's a moment of opportunity because in that moment you have the choice of whether to double down on your faith, to trust, or not, right? And this is true in many, many areas of life. It's true in the area of courage. The moment you're afraid is the opportunity to choose courage. Until you're afraid, there's no courage. There's no need for it. It's also the opportunity to give in to fear, right? When you choose to trust another person to have faith, then doubt is the moment where you get to either live that out or not, right? So you're, you're in a burning building on the second floor and you can barely see out the window and the voice of someone you trust says, jump, you'll be okay. That's the, that's the moment you choose whether or not you really trust them, right? Because until that moment came, your trust wasn't tested. Here, Israel is tested. It's been 40 days. What are they going to do? And I, I really empathize with Israel in this situation because I hate that uncertain waiting caught in the middle. It's so frustrating. Like, couldn't it be really quick? I remember, and I've talked about this before, when I was called out of the last church I served in and we were into a season of unemployment, I started out really excited. God has called us into a new thing. It lasted three or four weeks. I didn't even make 40 days. And I was like, okay, God, what are you doing? Anytime. I don't want to keep waiting. A little bit was fine, right? But now, not so sure. If I'm honest, I'm a, I feel a little bit like that right now. Not, not that I'm supposed to leave or anything, but we've started our vision and values process. And at the very beginning and all throughout, I've tried to be very clear, we are seeking the Lord. We're not just going to come up with some clever thing, right? We want to hear from God. But anytime you say that, that means you're on his timing. If it was up to me, we'd be done already. We would have had three meetings. It would have been perfect. It would have been clear and easy and obvious, right? And it's like, okay, come on, <laughs> please. Um, and that's this moment of choice. Here in this story, they don't choose well. You can hear it in the words they speak. The first sentence of human voice in chapter 32, they come to Aaron, come make us gods who will go before us. It's actually a little bit confusing. They only make one. In Hebrew, the word for God, Elohim, is plural and singular. It's one of these weird words that only the context can tell us. And your Bible may have a little note like that where it says gods or God. Um, come make a God who will go before us. Make an idol, make an image that will go before us. And then they say, as for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. You can hear the kind of like, yeah, as for this guy, I don't know. who knows, right? And um, in the midst of their uncertainty and their doubt, Israel does what most of us do which is they return to what is familiar to them. They return to the ways they know. 
right? And this is what we are all tempted to do in those times of waiting and uncertainty. You do what you can do. You do what you know to do. You do what's worked before. You do what you've seen other people around you do. You return to the ways of your world. This is what Israel is doing. Now, we may not catch this because we don't, most of us, and I didn't until I did a bunch of reading on this, we don't have a clear understanding of the world that they have tried to leave behind. The world for Israel is Egypt. It's all they've ever known, right? They've, they've been freed from slavery in Egypt, but not for long. And a lot of this whole journey has been trying to take Egypt out of the people after having taken the people out of Egypt. And that's hard. It's hard to take what we know and what we trust out from inside of us and replace it with other things to trust and to know. So Moses is gone. But the people still know they need to follow God. And it's important to note, after they've built the idol and they've declared, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt, Aaron says, tomorrow there will be a festival to Yahweh, to the Lord. And most translations will say to the Lord, and Lord will be all capital letters. And all throughout the Old Testament, whenever the word Yahweh comes up, they, most translations put a capitalized Lord in there. Tomorrow, we will have a festival to Yahweh. What? You just built a calf. How does this work? Well, in Egypt, a very common religious ceremony, annually celebrated, was that they would have a golden calf, and actually more like an ox, um, symbol of power and virility, right? And um, they would stage a massive festival around this. And at the height of that festival, the sun god Ra was supposed to appear riding on the golden ox. This is how you summon God. This is how you worship God. This is exactly what Israel is doing in this moment. We know how to deal with God. I know how to load a gun. I, I can do this. I can handle this. So we're going to make it happen. Moses went up and he hasn't come back, but we need God, so let's get him here. And, um, and it's quite a party they have. It's quite a party. They indulge in revelry. Um, when they come down from the mountain... Moses comes down, and he meets Joshua on the way. And when Joshua hears the noise of the people shouting, he says to Moses, there is the sound of war in the camp. What kind of party are you having that you can, tr that you can convince a trained warrior who has seen battle that there is war in the camp? Like, what kind of noise are you making at that party? Moses responds, he says, it's not the sound of victory, nor is it the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. And they come down, and the people are having a wild party in front of this calf. And Moses smashes the covenant tablets on the rocks before them. Because what the people have done in returning to what they are familiar with is to break the covenant that they have just barely made with God. Now, you think about that story I told at the beginning. That man is about to seriously hurt himself, trying to do it his own way. And we would hope that if his friend showed up and saw what he was doing, he would stop him and say, 
no, no, don't fire that gun. It's going to blow up in your face. Um, you're about to be in big trouble. And, and you, you think about what Israel's doing here, and you think about all the different pieces of this, and there's some real irony here. Because Israel wants a good thing. They want Yahweh. Meanwhile, up on the mountain, what we talked about last week, God is giving Moses instructions to build a tabernacle that will accomplish that end. God wants the same thing that the people want, and he's telling Moses how to make this happen. But the people on the ground aren't waiting, and they're doing it their own way. Aaron, on the the mountaintop, he's not there, but he's been named. He's been named as the one who will be the high priest of the people of Israel. Meanwhile, down at the foot of the mountain, the people have come to Aaron, and he is acting as the high priest, but leading them to worship a graven image, not the true God of all creation. Psalm 106 comments on this. It's one of the great story psalms in the book of Psalms, and it walks through large portions of the history of Israel. And this episode gets several verses, more than most other episodes that it recounts. It says, They made a calf at Horeb and worshipped a cast image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. And therefore he said that he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They have seen the glory of God on the mountain. God has walked before them this whole journey in a pillar of smoke and fire. No, they haven't seen the face of God and they haven't seen the form of God, but God brought the elders and Moses and Aaron up to the mountain and he ate with them and they saw a vision of him in his throne room on his sapphire floor, right? They have seen the glory of God as much as any human being can bear. And nowhere in there is an image of a, of a calf or an ox. At no point has that happened. And they take all of that that they have seen of God and they put it to the side, and they make an ox. And another irony here, when the glory of God is truly present on the mountain, they shrink back in fear. Moses, you go talk to God. We can't handle this. But now that they've built a golden calf, a golden ox, they're happy to dance and party and sing in the presence of God, right? And this, this too is one of these, these ironies here is that when we, in the midst of our uncertainty, turn to the things we're familiar with, we feel pretty good. We feel pretty safe. We feel comfortable, right? That's what we wanted. But we're actually in more danger by far than if we had stayed in the uncertain waiting period. But that's uncomfortable, right? That's awkward and stress-inducing, maybe anxiety hits us and fear and all these things. But the reality of the situation is that prior to worshiping that calf, prior to loading that gun, they were far safer than afterwards and they don't know it, right? Our internal state is not always a great gauge of reality when it comes to worship and when it comes to these kinds of things. We speak the truth first and then you walk your internal state into that truth. Because 
the irony is not the only thing that runs deep in this story of Exodus chapter 32 to 34. The offense also runs deep. Give you another story. This one far more absurd than the last one. Two people get married. It's their wedding day. They've just finished the vows and the covenant, and you may kiss your bride. And they've taken their photos, and, and, and they're at the, the reception. And one of them has to go fix something. The bride's dress gets messed up or whatever, and she's got to go deal with that. And she's gone for a long time, a really long time, far longer than the husband would have thought. And he starts to wonder, is she coming back? Is she, is she really wanting to be married to me? Maybe she's run away. Maybe she's gone. And so he begins to look for someone who looks like her to spend the night with. Can you imagine that? It's absurd. It's ridiculous. But can you imagine like, what that would do to the marriage? It's over. That relationship is done before it's even begun. And that is what Israel is doing here in Exodus chapter 32. God has been at pains from the very beginning of his meeting with these people, to show them that he is not like the gods of Egypt. That's why there's these ten plagues, these ten signs, each one of which, we walked through this weeks ago, but you might remember some of this, each one of which takes on some symbol or god or power structure of the nation of Egypt to show that God is bigger than all of these things. And then they get out into the desert, and God begins to treat them in all the ways that Egypt didn't, providing for them more than enough, independently of how able they are and how much they are able to give, valuing them each equally, not about their productivity or about their ability to work, showing them His love and His grace and His patience. Again and again and again, He's trying to say, I'm not like that. And the first opportunity they get the first moment where they're making their own choice, they cast God in the image of the gods of Egypt. They worship a graven idol. One of the first commandments, you shall have no other God before me and you shall make no images. They've received these commandments. They haven't even had time to live them out yet and they're already breaking. One of the top ones, like these, this is what our covenant means marriage covenant. I'm yours, you are mine, and that's it. There are no other people, right? Just us. It's the core of the covenant, and then on your wedding night, you go find someone else. You can't do this, and God's mad. Of course God's mad. Like, there's no escaping the wrath of God in this passage. Um, he has a right to be mad. He absolutely does. And we have this tendency, when a sin is understandable, to want to excuse it, right? We want to do this for ourselves, and we want to do this for other people. The sin of Israel, I get it. I totally get it. I get the difficulty of waiting. I get that uncertainty. I understand returning to what you're comfortable with, right? I think of Peter after he's denied Jesus three times and the rooster crows and Jesus dies on the cross. And where do we find him next? He's fishing. Of course he's fishing. He figures his life with Jesus is over, right? I denied him three times. Might as well go back to what I know. I get it. 
But that doesn't make it okay. That doesn't make it excusable. That doesn't mean there are no consequences. And the consequences in this passage are severe. Moses calls to him all who are still for the Lord, and the tribe of Levi gathers around him and goes through the camp with their swords out, killing 3,000 men. At the end of Exodus 32, the Lord strikes the people. Some translations will say with a plague, but that's added. We don't know what it means that he struck them. We know that he punished them. As Moses continues to plead with God, God says things like, my angel will go before you, because if I go before you, I might destroy you on the way. You're stiff-necked. And what's being threatened throughout this passage is the end of all the progress that had been made up to this point. We've been talking about how God wants to restore Eden. He wants to dwell with his people. The path of Scripture is from Eden to the New Jerusalem, to Zion, from the garden to the city, from the garden of God to the city of God, both of which are full of the presence of God. And God wants to take his people on that journey and he wants to dwell with them. And here he is talking about to Moses about how that's not going to be possible anymore. When we do these kind of things, like what Israel does here, there are consequences. And, um, you know, we don't do exactly the same thing that Israel does, because our world is in Egypt. When I'm caught in doubt and uncertainty, I don't make golden calves. <laughs> but we're quite happy to worship the gold, right? We don't trust in a calf to summon God, but we trust in money to protect us. That's just one of those examples of the way that we go back to our world in the same way that they went back to theirs. You know, I really, I really don't feel God. I think I'm just going to have to do better because if I can please God and if I can earn his acceptance, this is another world you might come from, an overly religious or legalistic world, where if I obey all the rules rightly, then, then God will show up, right? If I just do enough, then, then he'll do what I need and what I want him to do. And, and you start to trust in your own works and your own righteousness and your own ability to earn it. None of these things pan out. In the passage here, the gold that they've made into a calf gets ground up and Moses makes them drink it. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> they try to make God become present by dancing and singing and having a big party around the calf, but that very action threatens to separate them from God. I missed something earlier that I do want to say. They even go back to the ways of Egypt and how they treat one another. Look at the offering they take. Aaron says, let me find it here, take off the gold earrings from your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. Now, if you remember from last week, and we're going to see this again next week when we see it actually happening, when God commands an offering from the people in order to build the tabernacle, which is the place that he will meet with them, he says, give as your hearts prompt you. Later on, it's going to talk about the eager and generous hearted who will give of their, of their resources and the wise hearted who will give of their skills. When they come to build a calf where they are going to try to meet with God, they tell them what to give and who will give it. And who's on that list? The women and the children. We're going to exploit the vulnerable again. Back to the ways of Egypt. Back to the ways we're comfortable with, right? Not the ways of God anymore. 
And they eat that. Literally, they eat that. And they suffer for it. So, this is Israel, and this is us. We all follow this path, and so we all need to hear the good news that comes through the end of this passage. And I think it's important for us to understand the difference between good news and good advice. I've titled, jokingly, the sermons for the second half of the Exodus series, How To, right? So the first five were God the Great, God the Great author, God the great hero, God the great redeemer, and so on. But the second half is all how-to. Um, today is how to leave God in three easy steps, right? This is great advice. Didn't, isn't that advice you'd love to have? Wouldn't you like to know how to do that? Of course not, right? Um, there's lots of places you can get good advice, lots of places you can get better advice than I have to give you. Um, but the scriptures give us good news. No amount of good advice is going to get Israel out of this situation. It's too late for good advice, right? And Moses doesn't appeal to that. When he's talking to God, he doesn't say things like, okay, they messed up, but they didn't really mean it, so give them another chance. That's not true. He doesn't say, okay, okay, Israel really, really blew it this time, but we'll do better next time, okay? Just keep teaching us. Again, they're not going to do better next time. Like, that's not how this goes. Moses instead appeals to God's good character. That's the only place he appeals. He says two things. If you kill them, then that's what people will say about you, that you brought them out here to kill them. And if you kill them, you won't be able to be faithful to your promises because you promised your children Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they would have descendants as numerous as the stars and that you would bless them. If you are really who you say you are, God, then take that into account and act on it. And God does. He doesn't destroy them. He doesn't start over with Moses. Later on in chapter 33, when he's saying to Moses, my angel will go ahead of you, but I won't go with you because I might destroy you, Moses says to him, he doesn't, again, he doesn't plead based on anything that he or Israel can do. He says, if you don't go with us, the journey is pointless. Without you, we've got nothing. But with you, this can still be, and I'm paraphrasing, he doesn't use this kind of language, but with you, this can be an incredible journey. So please, come with us. We need you. And God relents, and he says, I will. I will come with you. I will do the very thing you've asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. That's what the Lord says to Moses. And the question is kind of like, well, why is he pleased with him? Like, what has, what has happened that God can say this? But I think what he's pleased with is that Moses recognizes who God is. Where Israel failed to know who God is, Moses recognizes who he is, and he appeals only to that, only to the character and mercy and compassion and faithfulness of God. And that's good news, because all of those things are still true of God. And we can appeal to him on exactly the same basis. We don't have to have our act together. We don't have to look at ourselves and say, I should be okay. I've never worshipped a golden calf or done the equivalent. 
None of us can actually say that anyway. We've all done stuff like this, but we don't need to be able to be free of that. God is still merciful and compassionate and faithful and good. He still gives abundant gifts of good grace, and we can still turn to him, and we can still say the same things Moses said. Yeah, we've messed up, but God, show your goodness in our life anyway. We've got nothing without you, God. We need you and no one else. If you're not going to come with us, then there's no point. So please, we need you. Come with us. And this passage, which at the beginning is so dark, and I hope that the two stories I told help you begin to see that darkness. Just begin to see that darkness. It's so, so offensive what goes on here. Ends up being all about God's goodness. And I've said a couple times in this series that later on in Exodus, we get the revelation of who God is that is more repeated in the Old Testament than any other verse within the Old Testament. God, in the midst of this, in the midst of what he's doing with Moses, and in the midst of his grace and his mercy and his relenting, reveals to Moses these words. He says, I am the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and fidelity, keeping love to thousands, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin, but certainly not leaving the guilt, the guilty unpunished, calling to account the wrongdoing of the fathers and the children and their children upon the third and fourth generation. This is revelation of the compassion and grace and mercy of God, as well as his justice, that the two go hand in hand. There are real consequences, but they are also really covered over by the grace of God. You see this in Peter's story as well. He's fishing, he's gone back to what he knows, and Jesus comes to the shore, and he shows Peter that it's him. And Peter leaps out of the boat and swims to shore, and they eat together, they have some fish together. And Jesus asks Peter the hard questions. Three times he says, do you love me? And when he asks the third time, Peter is grieved. And it's a moment of the recognition of the sin and the real consequence that he needed to restate three times what he had stated many times before, but he had betrayed when he denied Jesus three times. Israel, as we move forward in this passage, will get exactly the same opportunity. As we walk through the next chapters of Exodus, we see, that we see Israel beginning to obey. And so next week, we're going to look at the journey of reconciliation. Because where the grace of God can continually give new opportunities, and he does, rebuilding the actual trust between two parties takes time and it takes action. Israel will have to be faithful where they have been faithless, right? And we will see that as we move forward. But before we get there, we must center in and focus on that core truth that's revealed here, that our God, the God of all creation, the God revealed in Exodus and in the person of Jesus Christ, is a God of compassion, grace, love, fidelity, rich blessing, forgiveness, and justice. 
And we can appeal to Him on the basis of those things with as much or more success than Moses did because we have Jesus, our great intercessor, who stands at the throne of God, ever interceding for us. So it's not just us who comes before Him when we need His grace and His forgiveness and His love and His fidelity and His rich blessing and His justice. It's Jesus who comes with us. And that's good news, that God sent His one and only Son, Jesus, who is the Messiah, the anointed King of all the cosmos, to show us even more deeply and open up the way even more clearly for the presence of God to come in the midst of our wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you that you are good. I thank you that when we blow up something in our face, you don't abandon us. I thank you, Lord God, that even when we betray you, that you don't abandon us. That that's how you died for us, on a cross, betrayed. Lord God, may we each recognize our own sin and rebellion and failure. But may your grace and love and goodness and faithfulness and mercy and compassion overshadow that with so much brightness that you are the one we see and that you are the one we focus on. And Lord, I pray for each of us this morning where we need to repent that you would work repentance in us. Where there are those of us here this morning who don't yet know you and aren't walking with you and haven't made that first covenant agreement with you, draw us into that, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.